Good morning. Reminder before we get started today, if you have not signed up for the free student guidebook for the next quarter, and you'd like one, please go to the back table on this side and sign up. We'll no longer be giving out workbooks to everyone since we want to make sure that those who are getting the books are actually using them and actually benefiting from them. So if you'd like one, there are only a few weeks left before we need to order them, so you need to sign up. Or if you're listening to this recording, please email me at my address. <clears throat> okay, on to today's lesson. This morning, we are directly asking and answering the question, how old is the Earth? How old is the Earth? This, the age of the Earth is a real sticky question for many evangelicals today. Many evangelicals may not accept evolution or even theistic evolution as an explanation of man's origins, yet they are persuaded, or at least open to the idea, that the Earth and universe are billions of years old. After all, they say, hasn't science proven that the Earth is extremely ancient? Other evangelicals, other believers, many would say, why does the age of the Earth matter? It's not like it's part of the gospel. Why argue young Earth, young earth versus old Earth? This is just a big distraction. Now, let me address that latter sentiment for you by way of parallel for a moment. The idea that the age of the earth is not important. The Bible is inerrant. It's without error. It's true in all its claims, including the claims that are, by some standards, far-fetched or miraculous. For instance, the Bible claims that a series of miraculous and deadly plagues fell upon the kingdom of Egypt before the Israelites were released from their captivity. The Bible also claims that the sun and moon lingered in their positions a whole day while the Israelites fought with their enemies. The Bible also claims that a great Babylonian king by name of Nebuchadnezzar was made to live like a beast for seven periods of time, seven months, seven years, whatever it was, when he boasted in his own greatness. And the Bible makes many other claims besides these. Now suppose come someone comes along and questions these claims. They say, there's no mention of the plagues in the histories of Egypt based on our archaeology. They must be a myth. Or he says, it's scientifically impossible for the sun to remain in the sky in its exact spot without the world falling apart. It couldn't have happened. Or he says, there's no record outside of the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. It must have been a different king. The Bible must have gotten that detail wrong. Would it be important for Christians to stand against these objections? It would. Why? I mean, these don't directly have to do with the gospel. Why stand for these details? Does it matter if it was really Nebuchadnezzar who went crazy? Does it matter if the sun really remained in the sky? Yes, yeah, Stephen. That's right. If, if some of the details, if some of the claims of the Bible can be dismissed as not being factual, then the whole authority of the Bible falls apart. This is about authority. Can we believe what the Bible says or not? 
Does the Bible have to agree with another authority, like archaeology or man's scientific reasoning, before we can accept it? So it is with the age of the earth. The Bible makes very clear claims about the age of the earth. These claims are not hidden in some obscure passage, nor do you need a code book or a PhD to understand them. They are plain and they are specific. Therefore, to deny, to explain away, or to reinterpret the Bible's claims about the age of the earth is to ultimately do the same as dismissing those other details that I mentioned about Nebuchadnezzar or the sun in the sky. It is to ultimately reject the authority of the Bible, reject the ultimate authority of the Bible. And if we reject part of the Bible for the sake of some other authority, then if we are being consistent mentally, it's only a matter of time till we do the same thing with another part of the Bible for the sake of our, our new authority. Now, humans can be pretty inconsistent, so people will deny part of the Bible and still say the rest of the Bible is true. But if you're being consistent, if you hold another authority over the Bible, then you will eventually compromise other parts of the Bible for the sake of that other authority. So let us not be deceived. The age of the earth is an important issue for Christianity today. Not because it's salvific, but because it's about the Bible's authority. Can we believe the Bible or not? But you may ask, does the Bible really tell us the age of the earth? Well, it does. And that's what I want to show you today in our class. In today's lesson, we're going to first watch a video that overviews about seven to eight reasons based on the scriptures as ultimate authority that should cause us to reject the idea of the earth being millions of years old. Then, we'll investigate two very fascinating genealogies in Genesis, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, and then we're going to compare them to other genealogies found in the Bible and see what these two Genesis genealogies tell us about the age of the earth. Finally, we'll take a closer look at one of the main proofs asserted by secular scientists today, that is, radioisotope dating. We're going to take a look at it and see if it is trustworthy. Let's pray before we continue. O oh, Creator God, Omnipotent God, thank you for ruling over all. Thank you that your word always stands. I pray, God, you help me to be able to explain it clearly, that it be edifying to those listening today. And I pray, God, that we might be confident in your word as it is uh, plainly presented to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start with the video. Why shouldn't Christians accept millions of years? So we could play that on screen. However, you should be familiar with some of the reasons presented to you just now because they are the same reasons that we've been going over in Sunday school. But let's recap a little bit. What were some of the reasons that he just presented for why Christians should not accept millions of years? What's one of the reasons? Right. When we go back to Genesis 1, we saw, or when we went back to Genesis 1, we saw that the days were 24 hours. And that's clear from the grammar. That's clear from the contextual clues. These are normal days. You can't fit millions of years into the, the creation days. That's one reason. Something else, Richard? Exactly. Especially in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is very explicit when he says, from the beginning of creation, God created the male and female, referring to Adam and Eve. And he quotes Genesis 1 and 2. 
Jesus said that's the beginning of creation. You can't fit in millions of years. What's another reason? Yeah, Susan. Exactly. Millions of years, based on the fossil record, has to pretend that a flood didn't happen. But Genesis, the Genesis account tells us that a flood, a global flood, did happen. So those things that you pretend are not affected by the flood are, in fact, affected by the flood. So you can't, you can't get millions of years from those fossils, from the, from the rock layers. And there's some other reasons presented as well. This is the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, how they correspond with the, the normal days in Genesis. You have death before the fall. And the Bible throughout recognizes death as a bad thing. And yet, for millions of years to fit in the Genesis 1 account, in the very good creation that God created, you have to have death there. Not just death, but disease and other, other kinds of suffering. He makes the point that the fossils and the rocks are not themselves proof. They are not themselves indicative of millions of years. The scientists have to put that interpretation on the rocks. It's not the evidence. It's not the data. It's the interpretations of the data that we take, it, take issue with. And he finally mentions that many of the dating methods, like radioisotope dating, are not foolproof. And they have anti-biblical assumptions. Now, that phrase, anti-biblical assumptions, what does that exactly mean? We'll talk about it a little bit more a little bit later. But just understand that it's a, tr it's a way to say they assume that things presented in the Bible are not true. That's an anti-biblical assumption. So about seven or eight reasons, many, much of which we've already covered, for why we should not accept millions of years. We can't fit it into Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. Now, sometimes people try and fit it into Genesis 5 or Genesis 11 when they look at the genealogies. They think that we can put some years there. Let's examine those genealogies a little bit more specifically. Turn to Genesis chapter 5, please. Let's see what these two genealogies, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, tell us about the age of the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 make very specific claims about the earth's creation and its age, but so do these two genealogies. Now, in Genesis 5, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to verse 11. Genealogy goes on longer, but I think you'll get a good flavor of it from just the first 11 verses. Starting in verse 1, chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years, and he became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Okay, we'll stop there, but... Notice that the rest of the passage continues in the same way, talking about Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. Let's make some observations on this genealogy, on this passage. 
First, in like in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, Genesis 5, verse 1, functions like a heading to this passage. What does verse 1 tell us that this passage will be about? Yeah, Diane. Yeah, of whose lineage? That's right. These are the generations of Adam, it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So like in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, this is the account. These are the generations. We expect this to be factual. We expect this to be straightforward account of Adam's descendants. What information from Genesis 1 and 2 is reconfirmed at the beginning of this chapter? Diane again. That's right. God created man in his image. He created a male and female. We're also told explicitly, according to verse 2, what else did God do when he made man? This was not stated explicitly in the earlier chapters. Yeah, Danielle. He blessed them. That actually is mentioned, but I'm drawing attention to the fact that, or Judy, he, he named them. He named them. God named man in his name, and he called him man. There's a lot of repetition in this passage, you may have noticed. What are some of the phrases that are repeated? Yes, Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting one. We first see that applied to God. God made man in his image. And then to Adam, one he has set. It says he fathered a son in his own likeness. So there's that, that repetition. What else is repeated? Um, Roy. Right, and then he died. I remember when Greg preached on, I think, Romans chapter 5, he drew attention to that. that. Over and over in this genealogy, you have, and he died, and he died, and he died. We didn't have death. Uh, we didn't have any humans dying besides um, Abel, who was murdered before this. Right, so we have, and he died. We have, uh, these were all the days of his life. In fact, the whole thing is pretty formulaic when it comes to their length of days. Such and such lived, such and such lived X years, became the father of such and such, then he lived X years after he became the father of such and such, and such, had other sons and daughters, and so all the days of such and such were X years, and he died. Almost every character, every person mentioned in this passage is talked about in that way. It's a lot of repetition. Notice which descendant of Adam is listed here. Not Cain, not Abel, but Seth. And according to the previous chapter, and maybe you remember, Seth is which number son of Adam and Eve? Number three. He was the third son. How old was Adam when Seth was born, according to this passage? 130. Very good. How old was Adam when Adam died? Nine hundred and 930. Wow. Who is the last person listed in this genealogy? Yeah, Susan. Well, actually, we get, we get his descendant as well. Right, so his three sons, apparently all born at the same time. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the last ones listed in this genealogy. How old was Noah when he had them? 500. Now, a tougher question. 
But this is going to relate to what, uh, the next genealogy we're going to look at. Maybe some of you remember, how old does the Bible say Noah was when the flood came upon the earth? Six hundred. Six hundred. According to Genesis 7-6, it says Noah was 600 when the flood began on the earth, which means his sons were all how old? What, Khalif? 100, right. If he had them when he's 500, and the flood comes when Noah's 600, then the sons were all 100 when the flood came. It'll be a little bit important later on. So we made some observations of this passage. Let's jump from this passage now to Genesis 11 before we come to some more conclusions. Go to Genesis chapter 11. The beginning of this chapter is about the affair at Babel, but go down to verse 10. We won't read through the passage, but just scan verses 10 to about 26. How is this passage similar to what we just saw in Genesis chapter 5? Diane. Exactly. It's just like it continues um, just where the other genealogy left off. And it has very much the same structural formula. It doesn't tally for us the, eight, the total age of each father like we saw in Genesis chapter 5, but it still gives us their ages when they had their specific descendants. And, um, and we're told so we get the number of years after that they also had that descendant, which means if we still wanted to know the total ages, all we'd have to do is add how old they were when they had their descendant and how many more years that they lived. So still, it gives us the same information that we saw in Genesis chapter 5. Who are, we mentioned Shem starts this genealogy. And just to double check, how old was Shem when he had his son Arpachshad? Text might seem a little confusing at first because it says he was 100, and then he had a son two years after the flood. But we already noted that Shem was 100 at the start of the flood. And we're told in Genesis 8 that the flood lasted a little bit more than a year. So Shem was no longer 100 when the flood was over. So how old was Shem when he fathered his son? Well, it says that he was 100, and then he had a son two years after the flood. He was 100 at the start of the flood, so I'm going to argue that we should just add two years to 100. So he's 102, perhaps 103. And so how old would Shem be when he dies? Yeah, 602, or 603, or 600 one of those ages. So as you skim through the, the figures and their ages on this list, as you look at the ages listed for them and when they had their children, what do you notice? Yeah, Danielle. This is true, and we can see that in Genesis 5 as well. Though there is a difference in the ages between Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. What's one difference? Susan? That's right, they're not living as long. Yeah. In fact, as you get further down the list, their ages decrease. Any, or do you notice anything else? 
Yeah, Stephen. That's right. Their specific descendants appear at a younger age. Now, again, these might not be their first descendants because we saw Shem was actually the third child of Adam and Eve. But of the descendants listed, they're certainly being born earlier. In the Genesis 5 list, many of the descendants don't appear until the father is at least 70 or even past 100. But in the second list, what would you say is about the average age of the father when he has his son? Around 30. 30 to 35 years old. Notice Nahor in verse 24, to just give us an example of how things have decreased. Adam lived 930, but Nahor lives to be 148. And which important person appears near the end of this list in verse 26? Abram. Abram, right? And he's going to be extremely important patriarch for the people of Israel. And the rest of the chapter is going to go talk about Abram. Talk about Abram and his immediate relatives. So some fascinating information in these genealogies. To sum up a little bit of what we've seen, we're not only given a list of descendants, but we're told the lifespan of each father and the age at which they fathered their next specific descendant. And these lists of descendants are not arbitrarily chosen. They ultimately link three very important people who are discussed at length in the Pentateuch. Which three? Well, we haven't gotten to Isaac and Jacob yet, but certainly Abram is one. Noah and Adam. Right. All three of them are directly linked through these two genealogies. We're told the line of descent between them, and we're even told the number of years between their, their, their different relatives. Now, before we try to build something on this regarding the age of the earth, we should ask, are all the genealogies in the Bible like these two? No, they're not. And let's see this ourselves. Just back up one chapter and look at Genesis chapter 10. We're given another genealogical record. Here, they're the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But notice three striking differences between this genealogy and the two that we just looked at. What's one big difference? No ages. We don't get their ages. That's interesting. What else? Yeah, Khalif. That's right. We're given multiple descendants in this genealogy. We're told that he has multiple sons. And we're even told where some of them went where some of them went. They settled in this area. So this genealogy in chapter 10 is pretty different than the ones we see in Genesis 5 and 11, where we're given the specific years that elapse between the descendants, and it's just one. We're only interested in one line in Genesis 5 and 11. But it's not just in Genesis. Let's look at another genealogy in 1 Chronicles. Turn over 1 Chronicles 1. Some of the same people are mentioned, but again, we're going to see the genealogy is different than Genesis 5 or Genesis 11. So starting in verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 1, what do you notice is different about this genealogy? 
compared to Genesis 5 or Genesis 11. Uh, at the very beginning, the sons of Japheth, we, give, uh, we get his descendants. But later on in the genealogy, we're going to get the other sons as well, sons of Ham, um, and so forth. But notice what is missing again? The years, right? The ages. We don't get those things. And like the Genesis 10 passage, we have multiple descendants. We're not just interested in one line. We're told all the sons of Japheth in verse 5. We're told all the sons of Ham in verse 8. Again, a different genealogy. Look at one more with me in the New Testament. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, you can look down to verse 34. How does this genealogy compare to what we saw in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11. Yeah, Judy. All right, it goes backwards. And what again is missing? The ages. The ages are not here. There are no record of the years. But it does contain some of the very same people. In fact, all the same people. One other difference, you, um, just as a side note, there's an extra Canaan listed in this genealogy between Shem and Abram, but there's very good reason to suspect that this is a scribal error that was not present in the original manuscript. For more information on this, there's a great chapter in the Coming to Grips with Genesis book, which I can point you to. So, let's bring all this together. After looking at the sampling of some genealogies in the Bible, we see that the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies are different. In fact, we don't have time to look at every genealogy in the Bible, but those two are the only genealogies in the Bible that record the years. They record the years of, their, of the various descendants. And there are multiple ways to write genealogies. Those in Genesis 5 and 11 are the only chronogenealogies. They're the only chronogenealogies in the Bible. In fact, we should note, the gen the writer of the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, Moses, is very meticulous about time, about years. If you keep going on in the Pentateuch, you find that Moses keeps this pattern up. He records exactly how many years each of the patriarchs lived. And he also records, um, for especially the first couple, when they gave birth to their next descendant, how old they were how old Abraham was when he gave birth to Isaac, how old Isaac was when he gave birth to Jacob. Moses also tells the people of Israel how long they were in Egypt and how long they spent in each place when they came out of Egypt. Moses is very meticulous about time. His original audience would have had a very good sense of the earth's timeline and where they had fit into it, where they fit into it. Now, if this is true of the original audience, then we should be able to use the time details given to us in Genesis, these Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, to discover just how old the earth actually is. The details were there for Israel. They are also there for us. But someone will say, wait a second. 
Hold everything. You can't use the genealogies to calculate the age of the earth because there are gaps in the genealogies. Don't you know? Well, this objection is based off of evolutionary presupposition and the observation that, yes, some genealogies in the Bible do omit names. They do omit certain descendants or certain forefathers. However, I'm going to give you four reasons why we should reject this objection that, oh, you can't use Genesis 5 and 11 to give you the age of the earth because they have gaps. Let me give you four reasons why we should not accept that. First, as we've seen, the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies are different. They're different than any other genealogies in the Bible. Whatever might cause a biblical writer to omit unimportant names in one genealogy does not necessarily apply to these two genealogies in Genesis. Secondly, part of the reasons those gaps appear in other parts of the Bible in their genealogies has to do with the words being used. If a genealogy uses the phrase, blank, son of blank, son of blank, the word son, and the phrase son of, could mean someone other than the immediate descendant. The word is flexible enough to include a grandson, someone who's not an immediate descendant. So a genealogical chronicler could omit descendants for the sake of brevity, for the sake of symmetry, for the sake of memorization, without being inaccurate if he uses that word. However, this is not the word used in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11. We don't see that phrase being used. We instead see the phrase, became the father of, or fathered, or begat, depending on your translation. And these are all, variant, or these are all translations of the Hebrew word yalad. Yalad is a word that is only used to describe direct descendants. Father to son, mother to daughter, etc. Every time it's used in the Bible, it's used in this way. So again, Though there are gaps in other genealogies, there's a reason for those gaps. That reasoning cannot be applied to Genesis 5 and 11 because it uses different terms. It uses different language. Not only is it written differently than other genealogies, it uses different language. Third, a reason we should not accept the objection of gaps. It's inconsistent with the way that Moses writes. And the author's Moses' purpose and practice Given his meticulous care, or it would be inconsistent with Moses, given his meticulous care regarding time in these two genealogies and elsewhere in his books, to omit large swaths of time. Time was very important to Moses. And if time wasn't important in these genealogies, why include the years at all? He didn't include the years in Genesis 10. There was something that he was looking to accomplish in these genealogies with time. If it wasn't important to him, or it, he would only include the gaps if time really wasn't important to him. A fourth reason, and finally, why we should reject the idea of gaps in these genealogies is because it doesn't really do anything for those who want to fit in millions of years. It doesn't actually accomplish anything if you're trying to create an old earth. Because as we'll see more clearly in a moment, these two genealogies don't really account for very much time. And if you stretch the genealogies to include double or triple the amount of people, and therefore triple the amount of time, you still don't get more than 20,000 years. 
Moreover, why would someone write a genealogy that omitted more people than it included? Doesn't make any sense. Saying there are gaps in the, these two genealogies still leaves one with a gross inconsistency between the biblical timeline and the evolutionary one. Yes, Rob. Yeah, that's a good question. Most, uh, just to repeat what you're saying, Rob, I'm making the observation that people are looking to insert time somewhere in Genesis for the sake of evolution, for the sake of the old earth presuppositions. But with people already on the earth, why do you need that, that much time if we already have these descendants? That's a, that's, a, that's a really good question. That's a really good objection to bring up. But they're just trying. They're just trying to find a, find a place for these, these millions of years. And if they can't fit in Genesis 1, let's say, well, somewhere in the genealogies. But neither of them really can fit the millions of years. So for these reasons, and based on our own observation, there are no gaps. There are no gaps in these very unique genealogies. This means that we, like the ancient Hebrews, can actually use the genealogies and their time details to determine the age of the earth. That is, we can calculate how much time recorded for us in this history, how much time went by between the beginning of the creation and Abram. And then we can also connect that with the rest of the Bible. So this is exactly what we're going to do. Please take out the worksheet, the handout that you received for today's class, entitled Calculating Earth's Age. We're going to fill in this chart together using the information that we see in Genesis 5. So you'll need to turn back there. Genesis 5. By writing down the age of each father when his descendant was born, and then adding up those ages, we should be able to calculate how many years went by between Adam's creation and Noah's birth. And then we'll connect that with the Genesis 11 genealogy and the ages presented there. So we're not adding up the total ages of each father, we're just adding the, how old he was when his son was born. And then we just add up that son's age when his son was born. Because those things are all going to be continuous. Yeah, I see your hand, uh, Paul. That's a good question, Paul. For someone who ascribes to an old earth but still says they believe the Bible, how many years are they talking between now and Adam's, Adam's creation? I think that varies depending on the person, but likely, if you're an old earth advocate, you're going to be trying to fit in what the scientific consensus is today. So that probably means about 4.5 billion years for the, the creation of the earth or for the creation of mankind. I forget the exact number for based on the evolutionary timeline, but it's... Okay, so 338 million or 338,000? 338,000, okay. 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 Yeah, so uh, as Greg was saying, 
About 338,000, yeah, quickly. Okay, yeah, so just to repeat your specific question. If they don't believe in evolution, but they're still trying to fit an old earth timeline into the, into the Bible, well, what do they say? Well, I think the answer is probably going to be pretty similar, because even if they say, well, man didn't evolve, they'll say, well, this was man was created, because they're still operating off that same authority. They're still saying, well, we have this evidence, we have this scientific evidence that says the earth is this old, so it must be. And even though that's not what we come away with in the Bible from first reading, we just have to kind of go back and look at it again. So... Yeah, Adam was created in this way, but it was just uh, it was just with the timeline that secular scientists are proposing today. I'm sure, I'm sure it varies, but thank you for bringing that up, that some, some people who, were, I guess, fall into the old earth camp but still hold to a, a smaller amount of time. But I, I'm still going to say that we should guard against that. We, say, we shouldn't say, oh, well, you know, they're pretty close. Because it's still operating off of the, we're not starting with the Bible. We're, we're letting another authority affect the way that we interpret the Bible. Well, everybody's going to say that they're going on biblical authority, but I'm going to be presenting to you today that I'm presenting to you today and have been presenting in this course, that they're not really. If you're, if you're trying to bend the Bible to fit something else from outside the Bible, you're not really holding to biblical authority. Yes, Dwayne, real quick. Just as Dwayne was saying, people are not starting with the Bible when they, when they want to assert a timeline that goes beyond what these genealogies say, adding extra years or something like that. Though, I think this brings up an important point, not just with the age of the earth, but really creation in general, evolution in general. Plenty of evangelicals today will say that they affirm the creation account. They believe the Bible is totally inerrant. And then they reinterpret parts of it. So we kind of have to drill down and say, well, what does it mean if you think that the Bible is totally authoritative? Or what does it mean if you really affirm the Bible is inerrant? That means that you take, you take what it says. You start with the Bible, and you, you hold to that straightforward account. But anyways, we need to move on. Let's actually do the calculation with these genealogies now on your worksheet. And we'll start with the first one, with Adam and Seth. How old was Adam when Seth was born? 
mentioned this earlier, 130. So we write that in the top part of this column and this chart. Age of the father when the son was born, Adam was 130. And we go to underneath with Seth and Enosh. Enosh is born when Seth was how old? 105. And we go underneath. Canaan, or Kenan, Kenan was born when Enosh was how old? What is it? 90. 90. So you fill that in. So you have 130, 105, 90. Mahalalel was born when Kenan was 70. Jared was born when Mahalalel was 65. Enoch was born when Jared was 162. Methuselah was born when Enoch was 65 again. Lamech was born when Methuselah was 187. And Noah was born when Lamech was 182. Okay. So we filled in our, our, char our chart. So let's add up the years we wrote down. According to this chart, we'll be able to see how many years went by between the creation of Adam and the birth of Moses. How many years was that? Nice. Here in Danny over there. 1,056 years. 1,056 years from Adam to Noah, according to the Genesis 5 genealogy. We can do the same thing with the Genesis 11 genealogy, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you that, that number. Starting with the life of Noah and ending with the birth of Abram, we get 892 years, or 893, depending on what you do with Seth and the, the number about the flood. But 892 years. Add together the two sets, and how many years is it? So 1,056 1, plus 892, and we get 1,948 years. 1,948 years between Adam's creation and Abram's birth. So now, let's connect this with the rest of the Bible. Look at the very bottom of your sheet. Yeah. Yeah, 1,948. So in that section that says summary according to the genealogies recorded in Genesis, the first blank is 1,056, 892 underneath that from Noah to Abraham for a total of 1,948. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the total age of the earth. Total age of the earth. Well, we start from Jesus to today. About how many years have gone by from Jesus' birth to today? About 2,000. 2,018, or about 2,000 years. And then from Abraham to Jesus, this might be a little bit harder um, to describe, though some of you may have heard, about how many years? Yeah, around 2000, maybe 2012 or about 2000. This is an estimate based off of the biblical events aligned with other historical records we have, and it's the number affirmed by most scholars, but about 2000 years. So from Jesus to today is about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus is about 2,000 years. And as we've already seen, from Adam to Abraham, 
It's about 2,000 years, 1950 or 1,948. So put this all together, this indicates it an Earth of about how many years old? About 6,000 years old, about 6,000 years old. Again, there's no reason for us to read any gaps into these genealogies. And when we don't do that, and when we, we bring in the other numbers that we have, we get an Earth of about 6,000 years old. Now, this may seem awfully young, but it's still a really long time. It's just relative to other estimates from those from secular scientists, it seems very young. But someone might, or no, I'll skip that. Skip that one question. But someone will still say, well, what about all the scientific evidence? What about the variously dated rocks that we have? that we've discovered that showed Earth to be really old. There's no way these rocks could fit within 6,000 years. Well, let's talk a little bit about modern scientific dating methods. And most of the dating methods scientists use today are some kind of radioisotope dating. Radioisotope dating. What exactly is that? Let me try and explain. In radioisotope dating, you start with uniformitarian assumptions. That's the idea that the processes that shape the world that we observe today are the same ones that have always been. Nothing different than what we observe today. You start with uniformitarian assumptions, and then what you think are the oldest rocks and meteorites that we have. And you draw a sample of the chemicals within the rock, and you analyze it. Some of the chemicals within the rock are radioactive, meaning they're unstable. They'll spontaneously degrade into other substances. <clears throat> For example, some isotopes, that's just a word that means type, type of atom, some isotopes of uranium atoms decay and form lead. So radioactive uranium-238, part of the isotope actually breaks off. And what's left of the atom becomes the molecularly stable lead-206 atom. By the way, it's this breaking off of different pieces of a radioactive atom. That's why it's not good to be near radio radio <coughs> radiation, because it starts going into your body, body, punctures your cells and your DNA, and wreaks all sorts of biological havoc. <clears throat> Anyways, this breakdown, or this decay, happens at a repeatable, observable rate. Scientists call this rate an element's half-life. How long does it take for half of the radioactive atoms present to turn into stable atoms? How long it takes for uranium to turn into lead, for example? Now, the idea in radioisotope dating is to take, is to use the ratio of the radioactive element to the stable element present in the rock to estimate that rock's age. If a rock, for example, has a lot of uranium and a very small amount of lead, they'll say that it's very, or they'll say it's very young, since it hasn't had time to break down yet. But if a rock has a lot of lead in it and very little uranium, they would say it's very old, since the rate of decay of uranium is very slow. And so lots of time must have passed for all that uranium to turn into all that lead. This is the idea in radioisotope dating. Now, at first, this system sounds pretty reasonable. But if you're listening carefully, you may notice that to work, certain assumptions about the rock you're studying have to be true. And we're going to watch a short video now that draws attention to those assumptions. So if we could fire up the one that's on radioisotope dating, please listen and see if you can identify which assumptions are involved in this process. For the sake of time, I'll just review them with you. But they were all talked about in the video. 
This is a simplified understanding of radioisotope dating, radiometric dating, but a useful one. Three main assumptions. The first is that we know the starting conditions of the rock. We know the starting conditions of the parent-daughter ratio within the rock. It's assumed that when these rocks formed, there was only parent element present and no daughter element present. So there's only the radioactive element, none of the, the stable element. But this is not provable unless one actually observes the initial condition. Also, it's assumed that all of the daughter element pre present in the rock came from the parent element. For example, it's assumed that all the lead present in a certain rock that has at least some uranium in it is from the breakdown of those uranium atoms. But this, too, is unprovable unless you observe the rock the entire time while it was decaying. You don't know if some part of it was taken out of the rock due to some process or some, some amount of element was added to the rock due to some process. And the final assumption is that the rate of decay has remained constant. It's never changed. The rate of decay of that certain kind of element. Now scientists might balk at the idea that certain conditions or certain times on, of the Earth's history featured a rate of decay different to the one that we observe today. But one thing you've certainly noticed from our lessons in Genesis is that the Earth was a very different place at the beginning. There were no thorns. People lived to be past 900. It didn't even rain on the Earth for a while. Could it also be that various rates that we observe today, such as the rate of a radioactive element's decay, were different at certain times in our Earth's history? There's much more to radiometric dating, but understand this basic fact. The only way you can get millions or billions of years from radiometric dating is if you start with uniformitarian assumptions, presuppositions that the world has always been the way that it is today, that nothing globally anomalous or globally catastrophic has happened to explain the rocks and fossil record that we see. But the Bible actually directly contradicts that notion. I just want to read uh, a set of verses to you that do this. Second Peter, verses three, Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 7. Speaking about Jesus' coming, Peter says this. Note this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So these people are essentially saying, why, why do you think that Jesus is going to come? Everything that we see happening now is the same as it's always been. But people who say such things, Peter says, they forget something. What do they forget? Well, verse 5 tells us, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, according to Peter, what is it that uniformitarians forget about the earth's history? That at one time, the earth didn't exist. God supernaturally created it. That also, at one time, God supernaturally sent a flood to destroy the earth. And then finally, God will supernaturally destroy the world with fire in the future. The history of mankind and the earth is not a uniformitarian one. The Bible explicitly says the opposite. It's not surprising then that uniformitarianism arose in the 1800s and became popular from people who denied the Bible, who denied the authority of the Bible, because they don't go together. 
And therefore, we today, as Christians, ought to reject scientific interpretations like radiometric dating that are based on anti-biblical presuppositions, assumptions that don't keep the Bible's true history in mind. There are also several famous examples of radioisotope dating applied to rocks where the initial conditions were known, and when the dating system was applied, it produced wildly inaccurate result, results. You can find more information about those on page 45 and 46 in your student guide. Again, this is where we knew when the rock was formed, what were the initial conditions in the rock. But radioisotope dating says it was way, way older than, than it actually was. Do remember, however, that we aren't to get caught up in arguments with people about the scientific viability of radiometric dating. There are scientific reasons to reject it. But ultimately, we want to point people to the word of God, not just better science. Say, ultimately, the reason I reject that is because it doesn't fit with the Bible. And I know that the Bible is true. To summarize what we've seen today, despite its controversy in today's church, the age of the earth not, need not be a debated question. The Bible, based on its own clear time details in Genesis genealogies and elsewhere, presents a young earth of about 6,000 years. Genealogies do not contain gaps, nor do they need to be reinterpreted due to scientific dating systems based on faulty assumptions. The real issue here, as we've said, is biblical authority. If you have more that you'd like to ask about that or say about that, please see me afterwards. But we're out of time today. Next week we're going to talk about the idea of our stewardship as man, Adam was appointed as having dominion, Adam, or yeah, Adam having dominion over creation, that dominion extends to us today. So we're going to talk about man's role as steward over the creation. Let's pray as we close. Oh, don't forget the memory verse. We have only one more week for the memory verse, Exodus 20.11. We'll be going over that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would affirm the authority of your word, not give lip service to it, God, that we would not deceive ourselves when we look to reinterpret your word and say, no, this is the way God had always meant it. Lord, I pray that you would give us the discernment to see when or if we're doing that. Lord, I thank you that we can take your word as trustworthy. I pray that you would bless the rest of this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.